Facebook is a hotbed of bad takes today. Loads and loads of unsophisticated, anti-science, identity-driven drivel about the Georgia Heartbeat Bill. The one thing that these ill-formed jabs have in common is that they are characterized by extreme self-indulgence, a quality that I find annoying in children and morally reprehensible in adults. That being said, is anyone here willing to have a truth-centered debate on the subject of abortion? I'd like to give the pro-choice side the benefit of the doubt, but all I see are empty platitudes, ignorant slogans, and blatant false equivalencies. If you're so certain your ideas are better, then you shouldn't be afraid to have them go toe-to-toe with mine. This is the post I made to my personal Facebook page on May 13th, and subsequently had some responses, had two people reach out to me on the pro-choice side who were willing to have a debate. What follows is one of those debates with my buddy, Ben. So, Ben, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, I basically made a post on Facebook. I've read that out to the audience, and you responded that you were interested in having a debate on the subject of abortion, uh, maybe the Georgia Code in particular, maybe abortion as a whole. I'm good for all of it. So, at any rate, do you want to introduce yourself, maybe tell people a little bit about you, and then why you were interested in having this discussion? Uh, sure. My name is uh, ben, I'm interested in having this discussion because I believe in a, um, a woman's right to bodily autonomy, and um, I believe in, you know, standing up for um, their right to do with their bodies as they see fit. Um, I know that, um, honestly, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm used to this, and you can edit this part out if you want. I, I okay. don't really know. <laughs> sure. No, no, that's great. What um, else to say? <laughs> no, that's all good. So bodily autonomy, that that's a... That's perfectly, one major point, obviously. But Yeah, perfectly reasonable point. Um, okay, with that, I'll, I'll basically lay out my, my groundwork, and then you can attack it any way you see fit. So sure. I think that abortion, in the vast majority of circumstances, is legally untenable. I don't think that that there's a, a proper defense. I disagree with the findings in Roe. Uh, beyond that, I find it to be a moral shortcoming, and I think that for a number of reasons. Uh, and additionally, I find I find that most of the discussion going on right now is characterized by what I would consider extreme self-indulgence. And so that's the reason I made the Facebook post, and that's my basic stance and if you want to ask any clarifying questions go ahead uh past that year i'm uh i'm ready to have that assumption challenged in any way that you think's fruitful sounds good and before i jump into counter arguments for what you have said i'd like to lay more of a basic groundwork for what i said um for sure. what i believe in just in general so i i support um I support abortion to be legal through the first 23 weeks, um, as defined by the Supreme Court in 92, uh, when they updated Roe v. Wade. Planned Parenthood um, versus Casey? Yeah, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I support that um, up until 23 weeks, uh, I think a woman should have the right to uh, do whatever she wants, I mean, with, with the pregnancy, terminate the pregnancy if she wishes. Um, and then past 23 weeks, I believe that it is only acceptable to terminate a pregnancy in cases of extreme danger to the woman's life or just, you know, various extreme circumstances that might pop up. But for the, for the general, you know, the general rule should be after 23 weeks. It's, it's too late. 
Um, okay. You shouldn't have access to an abortion. Um, and so to going back to what you had said, um, I'd like you to expound upon your uh, belief that it's untenable, that abortion is always legally untenable. We'll start with that. That was one of the first things you said. So sure. you could expand upon that a little bit. Sure. So I think that, and I'm interested in you assigning a, uh, a special privilege to 23 weeks. I, I would like to know more about why you think that that number is important. But to get into it, I don't find a, I don't find a really reasonable, scientifically based uh, delineation between human life and conception anywhere in the pregnancy, the the pregnancy timeline. I don't find there to be any really sensible place that doesn't have analogies to people that are alive post birth uh, anywhere along that time frame other than conception. And so, I would classify that as a human life. Uh, from the moment of conception, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the life that that life is equally valid to that of the mothers or to a, a post-birth person. But I do think that that individual is unique and should have unique protections under the law that are granted to individuals. And so, unless I can be convinced that there's a compelling scientifically based argument for why we shouldn't consider that life a human life, I have a hard time agreeing that what's happening when a child or a fetus is aborted isn't murder. Okay. So I'll start with the life begins at conception. Well, life is not life is not personhood. Life is, you know, that's just a a very broad statement. Life could be defined, I mean the the sperm could be defined as being alive before it ever uh, joins with right. So let me dis- let me dispel that. That's not human okay. life, and and human life is what's key to me here. And so a sperm wouldn't have forty six chromosomes; it would have twenty three. I don't think that that's human life. Okay, so I don't, I don't, I. So you're saying that you think human life it is human life because it has forty six chromosomes. That's that's just and that's that, that's one definition. Yeah, that's one reason. That's one earmark, sure, but uh, but obviously I don't think I don't think a sperm is human life. Okay, can you continue what is, what's another ear point of, or another point as to why um at conception this fetus should um have the right to be taken all the way to term, it should have the right to be raised into what you would say is an individual. You might say it is an individual already. I would disagree, but yeah, I would say it is an individual already. It has distinct chromosomal makeup. It has distinct genetic makeup at that point. It's eye color, hair color, height, uh, body mass. All of those things are, are determined at that moment. Parts of its personality, for sure, are determined at that moment. If you leave it in its natural state, it's going to progress on to be a fully-fledged individual. And I don't... I don't I think really the the burden of proof is on the pro-choice side here, and and I will get into maybe the specific language of pro-choice later. But I, I it's not that I'm pro-choice. There's one choice that I'm not specifically fond of. But uh, I think that the burden of proof is on on you to sit, give a definition of life um, that is sufficient to allow for 23 weeks and not for conception, because I think that you know the, this argument basically that you're making 
at first is that you you believe in the bodily autonomy of the woman and i couldn't be concerned less with the bodily autonomy of a woman not that i don't think women should be bodily autonomous but i don't think it's their body it's not their dna right well we'll get to the bodily autonomy thing later like, like right now let's keep discussing the definition of life so sure. um I, you say that the burden of proof is on me. Well, I would I would strongly disagree considering uh, you're the one who wants to change the laws as they currently are in this country. I mean, Roe v. Wade has been in existence for, uh, you know, 56 years now. Or sure. Not 56, 46 years now. Sure. And, you know, you're the one who's wanting to change the status quo necessarily. So you, you kind of have the, the burden of proof there as well, to overturning this legally – I, I mean, I would, the burden of proof lies on that side, but... I, I don't think that the argument from authority is a very strong argument. If your authority is the law, that's fine, but Dred Scott used to be the law. And so I don't know that you want to use that as your argument for why why the burden of proof should shift and who's who's on the docket here. I've given you my line for for life, and I've given you my reasons for it. The line is conception, and it's because you have a unique individual uh, with what I would consider the spark of divinity within them, you, I think now, I mean, talk to me about 23 weeks. Talk to me about why that's an improper definition and what a better definition would be. Because the truth of the matter is we have to find a definition that works. If we can't find a definition of work that works, if we can't decide when uh, human life changes to personhood and why that's relevant, then we, we're going to kind of talk in circles. So you've, my nickel's down on the table. What's your nickel? So I would say that to have a right to life requires one to be an individual capable of living an independent existence. One must have a life before one has a right to life. You you can't you can't just say that because a fetus has been conceived that all of a sudden he has the right to continue to live because um, he's not an individual. An individual, by definition, is separate from um, another the human being. It's not like the mother has uh, the child inside of her that they're not two separate beings and um so they're intrinsically connected but they do have a lot of separation they have two hearts with two separate heartbeats they have two separate genetic makeups they have uh they they share some things and similar and, and no doubt they're intrinsically connected but there's there's a lot of separation there i don't know that the definition for life necessarily means that i'm outside of of a mother for instance there's a, a certain activity that humans engage in where they enter into a mother again i don't think that that makes me a fetus that's not not uh supposed to have rights anymore i don't think yeah. that the position to the mother is what the position to any woman is what makes someone uh individual or not and okay well there's i mean i have a lot more to say besides that and the, sure. the um i'm just gonna this is i'm reading straight from an article i'll let you know i can send you a link to certain articles okay. if you want um I have actually have all my sources in a document for you, but okay. uh, the normal meaning of human of a human being implies a physical body of a certain size and shape with common attributes, common attributes excepting disabilities. Early embryonic forms do not share basic commonalities that define us as human beings. For example, zygotes and blastocytes are barely visible to the naked eye and have no bodies, brains, skeletons, or internal organs. Are they material, materially substantial enough to count as human beings? Fetuses cannot breathe or make sounds. They cannot see or be seen. They absorb nourishment and expel waste via an umbil umbilical cord and placenta, not via a mouth and an uh, anus, as do all other human beings. Further, fetuses are not just miniature babies. 
At various stages, fetuses have eyes on stalks, notochord, fish-like gills, tails, downy fur, distorted torsos, spindly legs, giant heads, and alien-looking faces. In fact, an early human fetus is practically indistinguishable in appearance from a dog or pig fetus, and the fetal brain is not yet capable of conscious thought and memory. And uh, complex brains are what set us apart from animals and define us as human beings. The brain doesn't actually fully develop until two or three years after birth to where you can have conscious thought and memory, but I'm definitely, I'm not saying that I obviously support okay. post-birth. Sure, sure. I'm just saying that but, the but, brain is not fully developed for you to be an individual, unique person. You're not in, even close to an individual, unique person at conception. At conception, you might have chromosomes that, desert, that determine certain physical attributes, but you haven't developed, like, there's much more that comes into developing into a unique individual than just your genetic predispositions. It has to do with the environment you're raised in. It has to do with the way you were raised. I mean, the, the way that the mother treats her body throughout pregnancy as well as how she raises sure, you sure. afterwards. I okay. mean, there's a lot of things that go into your, into uh, becoming an individual. Right. And, and you're not just who you're going to be, like, conception I, I agree that there's a lot of things that change between that and I think if you if you wind the tape back you'll remember that I said that I'm not convinced that just because uh, a fetal life is human life that means it has equal value to maybe a post-birth human being but that doesn't mean that I don't think it ha- it shouldn't have rights that's my argument and so there's a whole lot there um, the, and I, I find most of it to be fallacious the idea I'm just going to go on what sticks in my brain. I'm sure I'll be missing some. But, uh, you know, one of the points was that a human being uh, eats through a mouth and uh, expels waste through an anus. That's not true for a large number of human beings. Uh, Colostomies and uh, feeding tubes, etc. I don't think that you think that it's okay to kill people who have stomach ports and colostomy bags. Am I correct? Yes, but I don't agree that abortion is killing a person. Either, so. uh, right, I understand, but I'm saying you're using that as your evidence for what personhood should be, and there's a there's a, a an analogy. I use that as a small small part of right. what I, personhood I, should be. Yes, and I've got more. What you just described as someone who you know that's not a natural state for a human being. That's at, usually at the end of their life, if not they're born with a critical condition. But that's not what you're describing is not the typical state of a human being. Okay, so I I think. Um, I, I can appreciate that. That's, it sounds like that's an appeal to nature fallacy. And, uh, I don't particularly think that those are, are valid. Just saying because something is the way that it, it should be naturally means that, that that's the way it has to be treated. That's not necessarily true. And it's actually a well-documented fallacy, but there's, there's a lot of fallacious stuff in, in what you just said. And so I'll go through a couple more. The idea that we can't distinguish a human zygote from a dog zygote that maybe if you're talking about by the naked eye maybe that's true but they have a completely separate number of chromosomes they have a completely different number of pairs and different links uh so the idea that we can't separate those using advanced scientific techniques is is incorrect and that's important well, I, did, I, th- I didn't say that i did mean by the human eye and that well, is what the argument meant well that's uh, that's not a particularly good argument we have better information than that we, well, the idea that we shouldn't be using science to determine what the best course of action here, I think, is, is uh, I, I, I think that's a mistake. Uh, let's, let's go to maybe the main point here. You said that the brain isn't fully developed, enabling someone to be an individual until, uh, you said, give or take the age of two. 
which there's a bunch of childhood psychology we could get into. Let's say for argument's sake that it is the age of two. Why can't we kill people in, at, until the age of two? Why not post-birth abortion? Uh, because I, I support the fact that at 23 weeks, it's you've had the woman has had enough time to decide uh, and make her choice and that the fetus is capable of developing outside of the womb. And um, just... That, I mean, what you're saying is why can't we kill babies if they haven't developed their individuality yet? I mean... Right. I mean, if that's the standard for which we're going to use to define human life, then why why does it change in relation to the mother or the time that it's spent outside of a vagina? If we're going to use individuality as the basis by which we determine whether or not it's acceptable to kill something within the room, why does that change when it leaves the room, the womb? I mean, you know, that's a difficult question. I just don't find it necessarily relevant because I will never support uh, the ending of an individual's life once they leave the womb or even past 23 weeks without, like, as I said, medical, um, very good medical reasons that are between a woman and her doctor. Uh, I mean, I agree. Um, I, wouldn't, I, think I wouldn't support it either, but I think it, I don't think that that means it's irrelevant. It's central to the argument. If we're going to use that as evidence for why it's okay to kill something within the womb because they haven't fully developed, then I think that you have to you have to explain why why it changes. Why, if the line is two years, not twenty three weeks, then why does it change? And if the answer is just because a woman's had sufficient amount of time. I'm not sure that that convinces me either because the, it's still inside the woman's body. So it doesn't feel like the line is changing. It feels pretty arbitrary. The woman, just yeah. because the woman has had sufficient time to remove something from her body doesn't mean that she can't change her mind. So it's still, based on your, your framework, it's still inside the woman's body. And it's still impinging on her bodily autonomy. So why 23 weeks? Um, at 23, like I said, at 23 weeks, this is separate from the individuality argument, but at 23 uh, yeah. weeks is when a fetus becomes, um, able to live on its own outside the body. Uh, the brain is starting to become more developed, not fully developed, nowhere near to the point where it could become an individual, but definitely becoming more developed. And like I said, if, if, if it were necessary, the doctors could remove the fetus and use modern technology to keep it alive. So at that point, the fetus is basically capable of supporting itself. That is why I would support okay. no longer that's, I mean, that's my reasoning for the 23 weeks thing. So maybe we've drilled down to the functional piece here, because uh, I didn't find a lot of the other stuff to be functional. So you think that fetal viability is the proper line, that after a point of fetal viability, it's inappropriate to kill the fetus because it could live without the mother. In all honesty, man, I pick a line because you basically have to pick a line. I think that science is very indefinite on all of this, and I think that you could take all of the research in many different ways. You know, I've looked at a lot of the same studies you're looking at, and I took a lot of things differently from them than you take. Um, I think that what it really all comes down to is whether or not... I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, but whether or not, you know, you think that abortion is murder, that is, I mean, that really is in a belief... Um, in all honesty, it is a belief. There's, you, you, ha you can't prove to me that it is murder. You can't prove to me that a fetus is a uh, human being who is 
deserving of equal rights as to the mother. I, I agree that it's a matter of definitions. Weeks. That's why I'm trying to get to your definition. So my definition is is that if I can't find a a time, a scientifically based element other than conception, by which the fetus has some type of personhood conferred upon it that doesn't have an analogy to a person that's living outside the womb, then I can't in good conscience with, with our 21st century technology and the advancements that we've made say that it's okay to kill that thing, uh, even, legally speaking. I can't, I can't in good conscience do that. And so I think, I think that it's, it's incredibly important. So if you pick 23 weeks because of fetal viability, then that should be the thing. Just the idea that you have to pick a line when it becomes human, that seems, that seems unsophisticated. And I understand that... Well, that you, ha you do, though. You ha I mean, if you have... So my real belief is that it's a very complex issue. Sure. And, you know, early on, the woman, you know, eight weeks or before, 12 weeks, first trimester, the woman has, you know, I would say she has 100% right to terminate the pregnancy without a doubt, as in Roe v. Wade, so all the way up to, I mean, obviously to 23 weeks. But my point here is that the point I'm trying to get, I'm trying to make and failing, I'm sorry that I'm talking in circles, but the point That's that I'm fair. trying to make is that, um, it's impossible to define exactly when that fetus should become a person and when he should be uh, given equal rights to the mother and and but it it, it has to be done because um, at a certain point the fetus does become you know able to live on its own and I mean that that's why I we that's why the Supreme Court I believe picked that time and I'm really just following their decision on it, but based sure. on everything I've read on that. but And I understand that. Okay, so roughly speaking, uh, I think it's safe to say that, that uh, you say 23 weeks, but you say 23 weeks primarily because of fetal viability. Is that fair? That's fair. Okay. Uh, and, and again, I don't, just because the Supreme Court says it doesn't mean that I believe it. I mean, Dred Scott was a hor was one of the worst decided cases of all time. Uh, it basically, in effect, said that black people weren't people. And interestingly enough, it used the same legal function, a substantive, substantive due process as Roe versus Wade. So uh, I don't know that, that that's particularly something that I want to get in line with. But we can talk about fetal viability. So the idea that, that what, what would be a, a, a good definition for you of fetal viability? The ability to survive and grow into a fully functioning individual with a fully developed brain on its own outside of the womb. Okay, so what would you say about people in an iron lung? I mean, not on its own. I'm sorry, with uh, the obviously with the support of modern medicine, it, there's there's no point when a fetus is just going to be removed from the womb and it develops into a person on its own. That's sure. not what I meant. That's uh, that's birth, I think. Um, yes. <laughs> so anyhow, um, okay, understood. Uh, I'll I'll just put it this way. I think I think there's some analogies there that you could you could draw to living people that aren't necessarily viable. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate to kill them. Now, you could say that those people have already developed into a person or were a person before they um, were born, and I would disagree. I mean, I think that there's people that, that um, basically are dead on arrival. There's people that are born brain dead and never 
do not become brain dead. They never become viable. They never can live without the assistance of another person ever. And I think it's inappropriate to kill them. Um, what would you say to that? They, so, so basically what I'm saying is they never develop a fully functioning brain. They never develop individuality, they never develop their own autonomy. They're all, someone else is, um, always required so, for their survival. I'm, I'm sorry. So you're, you're describing a, a baby that comes out brain dead. Is that what you're describing right now? Effectively a, a vegetable, you know, and it's unfortunate, but they exist and I don't think it's appropriate to kill them. And some of them are growing into adults and they never, they never had a fully functioning brain. Uh, what, I, what I'm worried about is there's people with mental handicaps and, and some of them quite severe that never, never reach this place of viability. And I still don't think it's appropriate to kill them post womb. So I'm not, I'm basically attacking the idea that viability is an appropriate way to measure because there's an analogy for a post birth person that's fully grown. That's that I think we would both agree. It's inappropriate to kill. I mean, sure. There's an analogy, but an analogy, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's not this, you're talking about people who have already been born. Um, and I think unequivocally, equivocally without debate, without debate, we all agree that people who've already been born, regardless of what circumstance they are in, uh, deserve the right to keep living. We're, we're actually, what we're talking about is sure. the right of women to terminate what I would consider a potential human being, not yet a human being. Right. And um, I know so that you think really that... a totally different topic altogether. I know that you think that it's a different topic. My issue is that the criteria by which you're trying to prove to me that it's a different topic, it isn't, isn't, um, consistent and it breaks down when you look at the criteria using post-birth people as an analogy and it is a useful analogy because there there's no other way to really determine if our criteria is sound i mean one of the ways that you decide that an idea that you had is a good idea is you take it to its logical conclusion and then you decide if it still holds water and the, the idea that uh, developing fully developing outside the womb with or without um, modern medicine and modern technology and developing a fully functioning human brain that's not a standard that we use under the law and it's not a standard that I think that you're debating but the problem I'm having is that the criteria breaks down when you extend it to its logical standard so I, I think we're talking in circles around that I understand where you're coming from I think you understand where I'm coming from maybe we shift gears a little bit here to I would love to shift gears yeah. <laughs> sure Let's talk, let's talk more about the woman's rights, um, because I, I, I think we may or may not find more common ground here. Uh, so, so talk to me why that's important to you. It's important to me as well for, for women to be able to do what they want. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, or we don't have to follow that, that train of logic. If you want to go to a different point entirely or talk about the Georgia bill in specific, I'm good for anything. So you choose. Um, I think one thing I'd like to get to before we completely move on. Um, so you say that um, a fetus is an individual with the right to um, to be born and um, to develop into a, a fully grown human. So why do you support abortion in the case of women who have been raped? That's a great question. It's a really it's a technically difficult question. Uh, very difficult. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I'm going to answer it. I'm going to answer it in two different ways, uh, legally. And, and I'll be honest with you. My, my mind isn't perfectly made up here. Um, 
British common law tradition, going back to the Magna Carta, is based on effectively the adage that I have the right to swing my fist until it hits you in the nose, right? And as long as I'm minding my own business uh, and you're minding your own business, we're fine. And that's that's a pretty libertarian take, but that is the heritage of our, our common law tradition. The The idea of that is that our actions are left up to our own personal responsibility. For the vast majority of pregnancies, people got pregnant of their own volition. Uh, If you look at uh, the Guttmacher Institute, incest and rape is the primary reason for abortion combined in less than 1% of abortion cases. So we're really talking about an edge case here. And you don't legislate for the edge case, you legislate for the mean. But we're super edge case. So with that being said, um, you, the problem is, is that especially in cases of rape, the idea that the woman is taking responsibility for her actions breaks down. She didn't make the choice to get pregnant. And therefore, I think it's legally difficult to say that she is responsible for the the outcomes of those actions since they weren't her actions okay Uh, and i love love well keep going i'm sorry i'll let you finish the other the the counter argument to that point and 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 that's the point that i'm i lean most closely to the counter argument to that point is just because something bad happened to you doesn't mean that you get to do something bad to someone else and i think that there's merit to that but i i don't know that i i don't know that I lean that way. I struggle between those two points, to be honest. But but the the obvious truth is this, that the personal responsibility breaks down at, at in cases of rape and incest, and so it does make the legal argument difficult. Okay, so we'll we'll back this up a little bit then. So if abortion, okay, so if a, if the personal responsibility breaks down when a woman is raped. You're basically suggesting that if a woman has consensual sex, then she has decided to get pregnant because you said that, you know, she she made no decision to get pregnant because she was raped. But you're, it's basically you get what I'm saying. It's like equating the decision to have sex with the decision to get pregnant. I mean, that's pretty biologically sound. Let me put it to you this way because it's a little bit more nuanced. She she decided to enter into a situation where the possibility of pregnancy was real. And so you think regardless of if she used contraceptives or if the guy lied to her about having a vasectomy or if the guy, um, I don't know, I mean, there's he poked a hole in the condom, you know, million, there's a million different things that could happen. And you think regardless of those potential scenarios, it's the, the woman should, if she, if she really doesn't want to have a baby, she should abstain from sex altogether. I mean, I mean is that... Uh, if she's if she's if there's no way she can see life going on if she has a baby then yes she should abstain from sex because it's not like contraceptive has ever lied to people and said that and w- it's it's and 99 would you put that it's same 100% burden effective on men? absolutely i would no i think that men that leave women with, after they get them pregnant are worse than the abortionist i, I think that sure they're worse but there's there's no laws in place to to criminalize their actions well they're and uh, uh, I, I, there are laws to punish men for, for getting someone pregnant and leaving them, uh, well, specifically paternity yes, laws. Ex- and and I don't not, think those I was laws more are... referring to the abortion laws on, on heartbeat bills. Sure. Okay. 
Yeah. So, like the new abortion laws, they don't place any burden on the, on the men. They place all the burden on the women. They criminalize the women's decision. Uh, there's no there's no criminal punishments for women who have abortions under Georgia's new heartbeat bill, um, or nor Alabama's, by the way. But um, but I. I I don't think that paternity laws are in their final form, uh, and they vary by state for sure. But yeah, I don't. I, I don't think that those laws are are necessarily perfect or good. Uh, I think that that men have a huge role to play and a huge responsibility for for um, you know for marrying or or for I'm sorry for getting someone pregnant and then leaving them. Uh, I will say that we're not talking about a significant number of abortions when you say that. Uh, we're talking about that's the primary reason, according to the Guttmacher Institute, for women to have abortions in about 8% of cases, that they don't want to be a single mother or they're having relationship problems. That's about 8%, so still not a very significant portion. But, uh, yeah, I think that I think that there should absolutely be penalties and probably more penalties that are in current, than are currently in place for men that get women pregnant and then leave. Sure, so let's talk about the number... The, the number one reason that abortions is, I'm, I'm not 100%, you have it pulled up, so you can tell me, but I believe it's not being ready or uh, not thinking that they have enough money to provide for the child. Yeah, that would ex that would that, constitute the primary reasons in about 48% the, of cases. The primary reasons, because especially in the United States, um, the cost of raising a child to 18 is uh, some 230000 and I have this in my notes somewhere. If you want to debate the actual number, but no, I'm good with it's something like two hundred two hundred thirty thousand dollars just to raise a kid to eighteen. That doesn't include the cost of childcare. Sure. Um, while the average income in the United States is, I'm ballparking here, thirty five thousand to forty thousand a year. Um, I mean, that doesn't even those numbers don't even begin to make sense as for how these poor women should be expected to raise and provide for a child that they can't afford in the first place. And some of a lot of these women who do have abortions, this, I'm sure you've looked into this and seen it. They already have multiple children, and they're in marriages. Married women do account for a large percent of abortions, and they're not only if they had that, they they don't have the abortion. Would their lives suffer because they wouldn't be able? I mean, okay, let's say they're forced to carry the pregnancy. Not only would that kid the new kid suffer because his parents don't have enough money to raise him, but he's also causing his siblings to suffer. And I mean, obviously not his fault sure. that abortion is illegal or whatever in this scenario, but um, it, I mean, it, it, it brings down the quality of life for the whole family. Um, the, the, these families, uh, unwanted kids are, you know, they, t they tend to, um, become criminals more often as shown in Freakonomics. I'm sure you've had to read that. Everybody had to read that. <laughs> and I know that that study is very, um, it's very morally questionable, but I do think it has merit to sh that just to, the sh um, you know, how it showed how the crime rates went way down after Roe v. Wade. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I take exemption with that study in particular, but it's a fair point. Uh, did you have more to that or do you want me to respond? I do have more to that. I think that if um, if abortion is to be legal and these women are to be forced to have birth, which, you know, if you believe that abortion um, should be legal, I'm not forcing anyone to have an abortion. But if you believe that abortion should be illegal, you are forcing women to give birth. 
Sure. And using your beliefs to force women to do something. I, I, so I, that's a that's a kind of that's a duplicitous way of saying what is happening here. I think that you are forcing women not to do something. Uh, E.g., the natural the natural end for pregnancy is birth. The natural end for pregnancy is not abortion. So to say that I'm forcing a woman to give birth is not precisely true. I think the law prevents people from shooting other people in the face, and I think that the law should prevent people from aborting. That's not exactly the same thing. No, yeah, they're de- those are definitely different things. Um, I've lost my train of thought where I was before. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you off. No, it's all good. I'm just trying to get back to it. One second. Um, yeah, I'm not sure where I was going with it, but um, let's get back to um, what we were going to talk about next, I think, was bodily autonomy. Yeah, real quick before we move on. I, let's do it. The argument that that there's social good for uh, for ending... So now we're not talking about whether or not it's a life. We're just saying that put that argument on the shelf. There's social good to be had if abortion is legal, right? Was was basically the point we sure. were getting at there. I, and I think that's I, – I don't really want to debate about if abortion is life much further. I have a lot more points as to why I think regardless of whether some people believe that abortion is murder and some people don't, um, it should be legal regardless. I have a lot, I have a lot more to raise on that sure. issue. But. So in, in response to that specific point then – I don't think that the cost of a child, I don't think that the burden that someone puts on society necessarily, uh, I don't think the dollar amount burden, to be clear, that someone puts on society is legal justification for killing them. I mean, criminals do have a huge drag on society, but we don't have, we don't kill criminals, uh, especially not all criminals. I, I, and they are a huge burden on society. They cost the taxpayer thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. And I don't think that we can just go kill those people. I don't think that the burden that someone places on society is sufficient reason for terminating a life at any point. And so sure. But it, the, the it, point that you're, the point that you're making right now, once again, relies on the assumption that a fetus is life. And which, well, the point that you were making, you, the point that you were making was agnostic to whether or not it was a life. Right. It didn't matter if it was a life or not. You were just saying that there's a social good, and I'm saying, okay, that doesn't that doesn't move the needle for me because we don't kill people based on how much social good they do. So it's still not separating. It's still not separating the logic and providing a criteria for why this should be acceptable to me. Okay, so let's continue on, though. Okay. Um. So we were going to talk about bodily autonomy and. I will say my piece on that. I don't think that we need to debate it too much. I don't think it's a very strong argument for me personally. Okay. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that it's the strongest argument in favor of pro-choice. However, I do believe that a woman, a woman's body is is her body, and it really, it really doesn't matter too much what um, men think that they should do with their bodies. If we think they shouldn't have an abortion, they should carry. The term, or if we think they should, I don't think that our influence has anything to do on it. I mean, pregnancy and giving birth to a child is a totally life-altering course of action. No doubt. Um, 100%. I mean, one one analogy that, and I, you haven't used this to your credit, <laughs> I'm just saying that one, one analogy that is often brought up by pro-lifers is that an aborted child may go on to be the next Mozart or the next... 
you know, Einstein or, or whatever, but my my response would be that, that that pregnant mother, that pregnant teenager might go on to become the next Mozart or the next Einstein if given the chance to go to college instead of raising her her baby at 15 years old. Um, Perfectly reasonable. Um, and keep going. Uh, I, 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 respond I was just saying, I think, I think that's, that's perfectly reasonable. Also, I'm not interested in controlling women's bodies. I agree that they should do what they want to do. Uh, I'm not, I don't think that a second heartbeat, I mean, unless she's an absolute medical marvel, I don't think many women have two different heartbeats. I'm not interested in their bodies. So I, I agree that that point's not very strong. I, fi I find it to be a bit of a canard. I, I don't care about their bodies and I don't want to legislate their bodies. They should be able to do what they want. I don't think that that second heartbeat, that second rhythm inside of them is part of their body. So, anyhow. But it is. It is It is part of their body. It it's, is not a separate individual. It's located human. inside of their body. And it would not survive without them. It is, it is by scientific definition, a parasite. Uh, children won't survive outside the womb without their mother for, for two days. Uh, it's... it's yeah. It, I just said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a separate body inside of another body. And I understand that that, 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 that there's a certain level of discomfort there. Uh, the problem is, is that the vast majority of those babies get put there on purpose. The vast, vast majority of them. And so we, that's kind of what my post was talking about, this extreme self-indulgence. I mean, we live in an age where condoms are free and contraception is cheap and it's readily available to literally anyone i mean i i did a google search just in uh my immediate surroundings where you could get free contraception and it is literally everywhere the idea that that we and, and that's a recent that's a recent development i mean we are truly blessed to live in this age where we can prevent pregnancy it used to just be if you had sex you got pregnant so you either uh shirked those those physical urges or you got pregnant period and now we have this fantastic technology that can prevent a huge amount of pregnancies and allow people to do what they want with their bodies far more than they than they could before and yet we still we want to have our cake and eat it too when that system doesn't work perfectly or we treat it irresponsibly we still think that we should be able to eschew the responsibility for our actions and that's the vast majority of abortions that we're talking about here so i understand what you're saying but that that's my two cents on that i mean i just I, and I would never, like, personally, I don't ever see a situation in which I will need to have an abortion. Sure. I mean, I, obviously not personally, but uh, where I will need to terminate a pregnancy that I caused is what I mean. And I don't, I don't think that will ever be a problem in my life, but I also recognize the circumstances I've grown up in. I, I mean, I, I was given very, um, from an early, from an early age, I was, you know, had access to uh, information. I had access to money. Um, mm -hmm. I have was educated properly, thankfully, before I switched to King's Academy on, <laughs> <laughs> on uh, sex education and how to avoid pregnancies and how to practice in safe sex. Because I'm sure you remember what our sex ed was like. It wasn't um, the best, at King's was Academy. it? <laughs> and um, I, I am going to let you know. I'm going to bleep the name of the school just because I. So people don't Absolutely, know where I'm from. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. I didn't really, you no, know, I'm not. No problem. There, I've, I've never talked for. <laughs> I've never done a talk show or publicly spoken in any way, really. So it's all new for me. Oh, you're doing um, admirably. So thanks. Um, I just didn't want course. you to think I was editing. I just wanted to let you know. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no problem. Um, 
So, anyways, uh, and I, I was at. King's so you're saying you had oh. you had access to money, right? You had well, access to lots of lots of. I think that abortion laws really end up discriminating against people who are poor and uneducated because, in reality, they 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 are more likely to grow up in poor schools. Um, they're more likely to be raised by parents who aren't home at all because they're working multiple jobs just to provide for them. They're more likely to not be taught about safe sex and not given any guidance as to birth control. And then a lot of them don't have health insurance, which, you know, birth control can be can be expensive in some situations. And yes, there's you can go to Planned Parenthood. I don't know the details of what you can do if you go to Planned Parenthood. I don't know how much they're willing to help people in need. You know, I'm not going to debate those points. Sure. But um, I do I do know that for women who are poor and uneducated, it is much more difficult for them to know that they should access uh, birth control and means of safe sex in the first place and also to access those things even if they do know about it and that it is those women who become desperate after multiple kids and to force them to continue to have children it just really continues the entire cycle of poverty because they're unable to provide for the kids they do have they, there's too many of them they I mean it really creates a, a circular process that keeps that keeps people poor especially people of color well but, yeah I, you're absolutely right about the poverty thing um, and there's historic poverty in the in the uh, minority communities for sure so I'm not gonna argue those points necessarily right here um, the so you're you're absolutely right about that. The issue is that I don't think that we change that we legislate based on what's hard. I mean, the world is is characterized by scarcity. There's not enough to go around, and I'm truly privileged, and I think that you think that you are too. And uh, I I'm grateful for all of my blessings, but I don't think that two wrongs make a right necessarily in this situation. I think that um, there is there are problems with education. There are problems with uh, with generational poverty and we can discuss fixes to those issues but i don't think that they i don't think that saying that because there's other issues that this issue uh should be treated in any certain way i want to fix those issues too and and i just to be clear i have a huge amount of sympathy for uh people that go through uh this process and think that they're they, and are truly truly desperate and at the end of their rope and uh you know i've had a lot of my friends i say a lot i've had several of my friends come to me and say hey look i'm thinking about getting an abortion and my response to them is never you're a horrible person and you shouldn't do that thing my response is typically something to the line of hey look i love you and i'm going to support you i want you to think hard about what you're doing and and make sure you're making a critical decision um and you know, in some instances, my friends have gone through with it. In some instances, they haven't. And uh, I've got I've got a lot of love and respect and sympathy for people, no matter what they decide. I I I think that and there's that's a... why we're able to have this respectful debate because I wouldn't be as respectfully debating with you if I didn't think that you were that kind of person. Oh sure, sure. Which is I... why you know why I checked in the first place before I even agreed to do this. Why I wanted to talk to you, you know, a little bit more and find out more about the show, but. 
keep going. Yeah, I, I, that, that's just important to say because I think a lot of times the the conservative viewpoint gets characterized as one that doesn't care about women, and and uh, I think that those per- people certainly exist. But as far as I'm concerned, and for the vast majority of conservatives that I talk to, that I I tr- attempt to be a voice for, that couldn't be further from the truth, you know. Um, so. At any rate, I do have a lot of sympathy. There are more issues to fix. I don't think that that, that makes this okay. I, I, I get what you're saying. The, the point that I'm really making, yeah, not that, that this point 100% on, it own, on its own makes abortion okay. I'm just trying to point out that abortion, like how, how disallowing access to abortion, abortion disproportionately affects poor people because... Um, before pro, pro Roe v. Wade, it was really, I mean, rich women could get abortions. I mean, there, there were certain states where it became legal. 1967, Colorado was the first state to change it back to legal. It had been legal pre-1900 or something like that. I'm not, I don't have the dates on all that. Sure. But it had been legal. Like when, when, when the country was founded, abortion was legal and not even, no one even thought about it. It wasn't on anyone's radar. And and the late 1800s, I believe, is when they, the first state started to put in laws making it a felony to have an abortion. And at one point, 44 states had laws prohibiting almost all abortion. And then 1967 was the turning point. Colorado began to allow abortion um, for women who were seriously in need. And then from New York was the first state, I believe, to allow abortion for just in general, for any woman who wants to seek an abortion. And women were, especially richer women, were able to travel to New York to get their abortions done safely by licensed professionals, whereas poor women were either left to carry the pregnancy to term when they couldn't afford the baby in the first place, or they were left to find uh, a way to get an unsafe, illegal abortion. Sure. Or self-abort. And, right, or self-abort. Which is unsafe. Um, absolutely. Which really brings me to another point, which well, I'll let you talk more before we move on if you want, but my next, my, the next point I'd like to get into is kind of, regardless of if we legislate abortion, how it's going to continue happening either way. So before we even talk sure. about that, I'd like to ask you, what is the overall goal that you hope to achieve by legalizing abortion sure so that's a good question going back really quickly i don't if you look at infant mortality rates before roe versus wade i don't think that it was that abortion was legal when the country was founded i think that it was unconscionable um and that's why uh, as the public perception of it as it's as uh infamy grew that laws started to emerge uh banning it um you know, right. You think you're saying that it just it was so uncommon people didn't even know about it is what you're saying. I, I don't think that people didn't know about it. I think that I think that it was, it was just, off the radar. Right. And, and to be to be clear, uh, there's been three women uh, in the history of the United States that have been charged with crimes uh, for aborting. In, right. It, I, I know that. Sure. As well, I was going to talk about that at one point. But yes. So. So anyway, I I, I, I don't think that it was that it was it was fine and everyone you know at the beginning or the founding of america was just like that's a great thing i think that it was it was so beyond the pale that it was not they they didn't think it was required uh, you know and that's why in roe versus wade you have 
the right to privacy coming from the 14th Amendment, which is not written into the 14th Amendment. And then the right, they say that the right to privacy emanates from uh, penumbras in the 14th Amendment. And then the right to an abortion uh, exudes from that, that other non-enumerated right to privacy. But I don't, I don't think that there's any idea that everyone back then thought it was okay. Uh, that I just wanted to put that bumper sticker on. So, right. and, yeah. and, you're, no, and, you're, and I, I wasn't suggesting that. I was more just the legal history. There was no laws regarding this sure. at first. Sure, uh, understood. Uh, so your your question then is what what do I hope to gain? What do you hope to achieve? Yeah. What what what? Let's say that um, as you have suggested, abortion is only legal in the cases of rape and uh, incest danger to the woman's and danger life. to the mother. Yeah, incest and danger to the, to the mother. Let's say that that's enforced nationwide. And what what changes? What changes next year? So there's there's a. I, I mean, I understand the gotcha here. Is that what we're doing? Is we're forcing women to have unsafe abortions? The the truth is that abortions won't stop. And uh, naturally, when you make something illegal, the cost for doing something that is illegal is higher to the individual that's doing it. Uh, than it would be otherwise. The truth is, based on the infant mortality rates pre-Roe, that when that that having abortion be illegal was a relevant deterrent for people uh, to have abortions, and and also it was a relevant deterrent uh, for people to to have sex in more healthy, constructive ways. I mean, if you look at at Rovers Wade, and you can say this is correlation versus causation, fine, but the the um, pre- the single motherhood rate has skyrocketed since Rovers Wade. Uh, I think that people have this this pressure release, and they just believe that they can they can always fall back on that, and they treat themselves pretty poorly, honestly, and don't exhibit a whole lot of personal responsibility. I think it is an effective deterrent, and I want less abortions to happen because I think they're a moral blight on our country and on the face of our world. And that's not to say that people who have abortions are morally deficient, but I think they made a morally deficient choice. And so I'd be happy to see less of those choices made. Okay, so that you said a lot, and I'm still just a little unclear as to what criminalizing abortion changes. Like next year, the ban that you have suggested goes in place nationwide. Are you saying there will be less abortions? You think there will be less abortions, and that's worth criminalizing it? Yeah. Yes, and and I'm not just saying that off the top of my head. The mortal infant mortality rates pre row and post row. Uh, indicate that it had a significant impact on the number of abortions that women had. I mean, I mean, I don't know that a lot of people understand how many abortions are actually going on. I mean, speaking about disproportionately affecting the black community or, or, or minority communities, more black babies were aborted in New York last year than were brought to term. I mean, this is absolutely endemic. And if you look at pre-row conditions, abortions weren't being carried out on that scale, nearly that scale. And so... I think that it was an effective deterrent, and I think that it would make it, it would force less people to, uh, to make it, it would force more people out of making that choice. And it is a morally deficient choice, and I think it's a good thing that if that happens. For, furthermore, I I believe that it is an inconsistency in our laws. So 
right, wrong, or indifferent, at a certain point, we have to stand up for being ideologically and morally consistent. Uh, the, the entirety of British common law and the American legal system is based on that idea, and I, I, I think we eschew it at our own peril. So, so that's more of a philosophical, ideo ideological defense of it, but I think there's a legitimate practical defense as well. I think that going back to Roe v. Wade and pre-Roe numbers on infant mortality, I'd love to hear, um, can you, where, where are you getting those numbers from on the infant mortality pre and post Roe v. Wade? And could you read those numbers for me? I, that's, that's one statistic I don't have pulled up right now. It's, it's, okay, um, that's fine. what is it? It's the FBI, not crime statistics. Uh, it's, it's. FBI data and global census data or national census data. That okay, provides that's, that's those fine. I was just I was wondering if you had that. All I, right, it's all good. We'll we'll continue on. Sure. Um, what I would like to say that um, I don't really have much to say about infant mortality rates pre and post Roe v. Wade. I was hoping you had the numbers, but we'll get into that another time. Um, sure. I think that. Uh, Using pre-Roe v. Wade numbers is a very, for either one of us, is a precarious argument, uh, especially considering when abortion is illegal, obviously a lot of those abortions go unreported. Um, but Right, which is why I was using not illegal abortions, I was using infant mortality. Right, to, exactly. Yes. And, and so, so pregnancy rates seem to stay, seem to stay, uh, pretty close to the trend. So by seeing, by taking the trend of pregnancy rates and then subtracting the number of births, you get the infant mortality rate, which would account for the abortions that were happening before that went unreported. Right. Okay. Um, so there are estimates, though, of illegal abortions in the 50s and 60s, and they're completely rough estimates. Um, some as low as 200,000 a year to 1.2 million a year. Um, Pretty big standard depth. Very, very big difference there. And that's why I'm, like, I'm trying to say I'm, gonna, I'm going to read some of this, and I would like to say I don't think that – I think that it, it has very limited significance, but it does have significance. Okay. Um, one stark indication of the prevalence of illegal abortion was the death toll in 1930. Abortion was listed at the, as the official cause of death for almost 2,700 women. The death toll had, had declined to just under 1,700 by 1940 and to just over 300 by 1950, most likely because of the introduction of antibiotics in the 1940s. By 1965, the number of deaths due to illegal abortion had fallen to just under 200, but illegal abortion still accounted for 17% of all deaths attributed to pregnancy and childbirth that year. Um, and get to this graph here. Um, the number of deaths since um, Roe v. Wade has just absolutely declined dramatically. Um, the number of deaths from abortion, the number of mothers' deaths from abortion. Um, uh, sure. Right. Um, supporters of like this graph um, shows that in 1965 there was 200 deaths from abortion. 1970, when a couple states had started to legalize it, it was at 140-ish, and then by 1975 it was down to less than 25 deaths a year from abortion, and that number steadily declines for the most part as time moves forward. Um, 
And I think that a lot of um, a lot of pro-lifers use the argument that we'll be putting more women in danger um, by uh, illegalizing abortion. I think that is very true, but I do not believe that um, the pro the the pre Roe v Wade statistics really show anything conclusive as to that because technology was so far behind where we are now. Um, healthcare was so far behind where we are now. So I think a better a better approach to determining how the illegality of um, abortion affects women and affects abortion rates. I think a better way to look at that besides. Uh, besides Roe v. Wade, is to look at other countries in the world who currently, in uh, modern times, um, prohibit abortion and the abortion rates in those countries. And uh, pretty much all of the statistics I have found show that in countries where abortion is heavily restricted, the abortion rate is actually much higher than in countries where abortion is legalized and um sex education is normalized and I'd like to hear your response to that. Um, I have some specific statistics from um, abortions. This is just Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, the abortion rate in Latin America and the Caribbean from 2010 to 2014 was 44 per 1,000 pregnancies. Mm-hmm. While the United States in that same time, uh, which obviously has legal abortion throughout the country, 17 per 1,000. Okay. So... I do agree that that not reporting is is significant if you're talking about the abortion rates pre-row. That's why I use the infant mortality rate. I find that statistic to be pretty foolproof um, because it accounts for what is a very consistent trend, which is the uh, pregnancy rate. So I do think that number is valid. Uh, Moving on to those numbers now. Uh, When you look at different countries that have restricted abortion, you're effectively taking a univariate analysis. You're basically saying that these two countries are similar, and I know that you don't think this is true, but this is what that argument is saying, that effectively these two countries are the exact same except for this one variable, and that's just simply not the case. The culture, uh, specifically in the Caribbean and in uh, Latin America, is far different from the culture in the United States. And uh, what's interesting is when you look at the rate of abortions in those communities when they migrate to the United States, that becomes a really interesting t- statistic to look at. And what you see is that effectively in, in those communities, when, when first-generation people migrate to the United States or immigrate to the United States, from those communities, the abortion rates don't change or they go up. So I, I don't necessarily think that you can simply say that the only the only important variable there is uh the legality of abortion, because obviously there's more at play here. Uh, Different, different groups have vast, even within the United States, when you break it down against different demographic and cultural lines, there's vastly, vastly different abortion rates. And so culture, culture matters. And, um, and I, I don't think that we can, I, I think that that's a correlation, not a causation. And culture matters for sure. But when you look at the overall statistics, um, from a global perspective, and this is from Gutmacher.org. Mm-hmm. I have can send you the link to this. Um, let's see, I'm trying to find. 19, okay. I've got Gut, Gutmacher exactly. pulled up over here too. 
Right, I've got Goop Walker on several tabs. Sure. Um, I'm trying to find, I had it earlier, the abortion rate across the world um, by regions, but regardless, I can't quite find it at this moment. The overall trend was showing that more developed, more liberal countries that permit abortion just in general, as a rule, had less abortions per 1,000 births as developing countries, uh, countries that restricted abortion as as almost as a general rule for every country involved. So when you look at it from a global standpoint, I do think that it has significance. Um, what you, what you said, maybe comparing the U.S. to one other country, yes, the cultural differences matter. But I think if you look at it from a global perspective, you'll see that in the in the places where abortion is legal in the more liberal countries, Sweden was the lowest rate, I believe. It was either Sweden or Switzerland mm-hmm. at five and a thousand women, which is significantly less than even America, a, a much than than the United States, much less, um, and. Though that country is, I mean, as you know, one of the most liberal countries out there. Sure. Um, I think that I just don't, I just don't see making abortion illegal as actually leading to less abortion. I just, I don't see that correlation or that causation. I don't agree that it is an effective deterrent in any way. Um, it, in it, all honesty, there's, the, like you said, there really is. No, no punishment um, for the woman who receives an illegal abortion. Now she might be coerced into turning on the provider of the abortion if that abortion was legal. Right. I mean illegal. But there is no. Why? Why would it deter the woman if there is no punishment? The real punishment in the woman's eyes is to bring that child. Like regardless of what you or I think about it, the punishment in the woman's eyes eyes is in a woman who is seeking an abortion. Her punishment would be to have to give birth to that child and to have to raise that child. Um, and really, I just don't see making it illegal, especially without any kind of penalties as a deterrent whatsoever. So the, I don't think anybody in the pro-life community or, or exceptionally few. Uh, Trump, you know, Trump said something about uh, prosecuting women who had abortions in the entire pro-life yeah, pro-life Trump, movement Trump says counts for anything we know that <laughs> sure sure i mean the entire pro-life movement jumped on his head i don't think anybody's interested in um in prosecuting women for having abortions i'm certainly not i am in favor of prosecuting abortionists and you know like the law in the georgia heartbeat bill specifically um is tar- all of the criminal statutes uh, apply only to abortionists, and I'm in full support of that. Uh, if we can have less abortionists at work, I think that that's good too. Uh, at any rate, uh, again, I I think if even if you're looking at the world at large, technology certainly helps. Uh, so one thing that that you're saying is that these more westernized, progressive, liberal, democratic states have less abortions. Well, they have less need for abortion, and this is just off the top of my head, but they have far less need for abortion because they have education, they have far better access to contraception, they have uh, infinitely less abortions 
considered than let's say India. So again, I think we're looking at a univariate analysis and trying to draw detailed conclusions. And I'd be I'd be interested in seeing a multivariate analysis. I think that the vast majority of those things can be explained away by a multivariate analysis. And really, the truth is, any social scientist worth their salt wouldn't conduct a univariate analysis, and so neither will I. But the point is, is that in America, you did see the infant mortality rate go up after Roe. So I think that that is that is absolutely valid to look at uh, the fetal mortality rate and the infant mortality rate. I think it's super, I think that that is super valid to look at and it's a direct comparison as opposed to a univariate analysis. Okay. But the many women would not have, okay. So in order for a woman to have been uh, a pregnancy that was terminated to have been counted in this infant mortality rate that you speak of, they would have had to report this pregnancy in the first place to anybody. Would so, they not? So see, that that's not exactly correct. The pregnancies aren't reported. The pregnancies, pregnancy rates progress, and they do vary year to year, but they progress based on a very standard trend. And so you can look at the, you can take the census data, look at the, the um, pregnancies after and before uh, based on, uh, census polls and determine the trend. And so the trend is what fills in a lot of gaps. You know, the census is only taken every five uh, to 10 years. So at any rate, the trend is what we're looking at. And then the births, births are effectively all reported and this very few that aren't are uh, averaged as best we can. And there is a huge change in that rate. So we're not using reported data um, we're not using reported data from a source that would have a conflict of interest. We're using reported data that uh, there's effectively either extremely strong trends or conf or no conflicts of interest when like births. So I, I'm I, still, I'd like, I think you're doing a good job, but I'd like you to just explain a little bit further because I'm still a little confused. So in a in a post pre-abortion, uh, the United States was a pre-legal abortion society pre 1973. Sure. Um, women very likely, whether or not they um, would ever actually be prosecuted for an abortion, if they were even considering having one, they would never speak publicly about that pregnancy for fear of... Right, I agree. So they so wouldn't, where, they where wouldn't report the, the pregnancy. The, right, at all in the first place. So that's my question is, where does these pregnancy statistics come from exactly? Right. And those come from the census data and the trends that are applied off of those. Because basically, people have sex at a pretty consistent rate. Uh, it varies over time, but it doesn't vary greatly year to year. And so the, the averages that you have from those bits of data, which, by the way, we didn't change our calculation of pre and post row, um, and also the trend line extends pre and post row. So we didn't see a change in that trend line pre and post. Like all of a sudden there was a lot more people uh, reporting pregnancies that were missed by the trend line earlier. That doesn't appear to be the case. We were using that, that pretty standardized trend based on the fact that human beings in a given society have sex at a pretty consistent rate, especially with a large enough sample. And then we subtract from that the births to get the mortality rate. So it's not replying. It's not relying on lack of reporting. I I understand what you're saying. It just it sounds like a lot of speculation, all to reach the point that um, 
there are more abortions per year now than there were pro uh, I mean pre Roe v Wade I think it's the best number we have that is both uh, not a univariate analysis and also takes out the personal decisions of people who would want to skew the data out of it. I mean, it is the best look we have. So I I understand that there is a certain amount of speculation in statistics, but there there has to be. But statistics has proven to be a powerful tool. I would also claim there to be a univariate analysis just based on the entire um, modernization and realization of women as equals as time has gone on. I mean, back in the the 60s, if a woman was pregnant outside of wedlock, even continuing into the 70s, and as time goes on, that's slowly become more acceptable, and women are slowly more able to, you know, actually talk about that. And um, I just... I think that society was entirely different back in the 60s, sure. I mean. Sure, and uh, my point is that the pregnancy rates haven't changed considerably. That trend line, even though it varies slightly, doesn't hasn't changed dramatically, even, even as that has become true. So, at any rate... Um, I understand where you're coming from. I think uh, I think I'd be happy if you wanted to send me some of your numbers. I'd be happy to look at them. I could send you some of my numbers too. Uh, but long and short, uh, if there was nothing else significant you wanted in to, wanted to get into, uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. And and I understand your point of view pretty well. And I think you've got some some uh, arguments that that aren't very compelling to me, but they're not unfleshed out. So uh, was there anything else specific you wanted to get into? Um. Sure. The the only thing I have left that I'd like to really get into sure. is um, what I would I would say that one thing we can agree on um, is whether or not abort we think that abortion is wrong or should be a crime. We can agree on that unplanned pregnancy is the underlying problem that leads to this situation in which abortions are caused. And I can agree with wanting there to be less abortions i just don't agree that and i and i will say this i want there to be less abortions because i think that every time a woman makes the decision to go through an abortion it is a very difficult decision for her it is very traumatic for her um sure and i i think that just overall as a society we need to look at this and say how can we how can we help reduce the amount of unplanned pregnancies so that the situation never even occurs in the first place. And I just want to point at what I think is a more viable method. And, you know, I, I really didn't, I, I mean, there's a lot of hypotheticals. I really, I never understood where, how, if we make abortion illegal, that is actually really going to reduce the number of pregnancies. But I mean, not the number of pregnancies, the number of abortions. Sure. Um, but I do know that there is another way that reduces the number of abortions. That has nothing to do with, you know, um, legislation, and that is providing access to contraceptives and providing access to, um, like, obviously, sex education. At a, uh, you know, at a, we need to do better. Is what I'm trying to say. We need to do better than we have done. And I think that Colorado is leading the charge on this. Um, there's a very recent program that they've put into place in the past five years where they are now offering teenagers um, free IUDs. And um, 
the teen birth rate since they started this program has fallen 54%, and the teen abortion rate has declined to 64% in the last eight years. And I think that, that I say all this to say that I think there are more viable, I, I agree with your common cause of reducing the amount of abortions. I just don't agree with the means. Sure. And I don't agree with infringing on a, on a woman's right to make that decision. But I do agree with the need to reduce the amount of abortions. And I think that, um, I think there's better ways to do it. Hey, I really appreciate that. And, and we do find some common ground. I, I think that, uh, our education system is certainly broken and needs improvement. We might have different prescriptions on how to get there too, uh, but we can agree that the problems are the same for sure. Uh, I think that the practical argument for, for outlawing abortion is only half the argument. We didn't really get into the other one, but we seem to agree on it in, in a certain point. And the philosophical argument was that uh, we see, we see um, abortion as traumatic and traumatic things uh, occur from tragedy. I mean, the old standard used to be that it should be safe, legal and rare. And somehow we've thrown that out the window and you have Michelle Wolf getting on Comedy Central and screaming, shot your abortion, having a pro-abortion party. I think I don't think that that's the stand you take, but that seems to be a stand that's gaining more and more popularity. I don't think it's something to be celebrated and I don't think you do either. Um, and, and we disagree a little bit on the best ways to get there. But I think that's I think that's telling as far as as why we find that to be, uh, why we find it in common to have reducing the number of abortions being a valuable goal. Uh, I think it's because we do understand that at a certain extent, uh, arbitrary or not, life or not, that it's something that is not necessarily a social good. That if we could reduce the number of abortions necessary or required, or even the amount of women trying to make that decision, that we could agree that would be a good thing. I'm not mischaracterizing you, am I? No, I agree that it would be a good thing too, and I would say, I would expand upon it, but by saying that I, yeah, I think that um, stopping these unwanted pregnancies in the first place is obviously a better solution than an abortion um, financially, tra- sure. as far as trauma goes, as far as even you know we wouldn't obviously we wouldn't be having this argument in the first place if unplanned pregnancy wasn't the real underlying issue here, so. Yeah, I say I say all that to say that I I support a woman's right to terminate the pregnancy at any point, but but before 23 weeks. But um, I definitely I definitely think that it shouldn't be it shouldn't be considered a form of birth control. I think it should be when birth control has failed, uh, when the pregnancy is unintended. I don't I don't think that. And I don't, and I don't think that that represents a large number of women. I, you have not painted this argument, and I respect you for that. But a, a lot of pro-lifers do paint the argument that, you know, women use it as a form of birth control. And there's certainly women out there who are on their fourth or fifth, and sure. and abuse the system. But I don't think that that I don't think that that represents the majority of women who have abortions. And I think that most of them are desperate and trying to avoid something that will change their life and the lives of their families for the worse. So, well, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on the, that point. Um, I, I know that there are women that, that use it as a form of contraception and I would be uh, loath to characterize all women um, or, or even a majority of women who are making that decision in that way. I have got a lot of compassion for them. Um, and I, I'm glad that we both agree that uh, we should reduce the number of abortions. My personal take is that personal responsibility is king. Uh, we both obviously see it as a, as a negative 
uh, abortion in general. And I think one of the best ways to reduce unwanted pregnancies is to uh, not have sex with people that you don't want to raise a kid with. And uh, anyhow, that's my take. And I'll give you the final word. All right, man. Have a good night. Okay. Well, oh, sorry. I thought you, I thought you might want to put one bumper on that. If not, let me just say thanks so much for okay. thanks for, so much for coming on the show. You've got balls oh, okay. of steel, and uh, I really appreciate you having a respectful debate. I think your intentions are good. We disagree on some of the prescriptions, but um, hell of a job, and I really appreciated talking to you. No, absolutely. I appreciated it too, and maybe we can um, maybe in the future we could have a similar thing on a different topic that is more important, um, I believe is more important to the world. Um, and I don't even know how you feel about the topic anyways, but you know, if you ever, if you ever want to do something like this again, just I'm, I'm willing to take part in it and offer the, the opposite perspective is what I'm trying to say. Awesome. Well, uh, definitely be looking out for it because we definitely will. Um, and, uh, you, you represented the viewpoint admirably. So appreciate that. And you have a great night. You too, man. Have a good one. See ya. So there you have it. Thank you so much, Ben, once again, for coming on and having that debate with me. I thought it was good-natured. I thought you represented your viewpoint well. Uh, I still have issues, obviously, with that side of the aisle, but I think it takes an immense amount of courage to come into enemy territory and represent yourself like that. So I'm glad that we could accomplish that task at least. I think that that's really what the show is all about, is different viewpoints, disagreeing and doing it politely and creating a space for that in a world where I think uh, there's constantly less and less area for that to occur. So follow us. You know our socials probably. If not, listen to another episode. I'm not going to go through them here. And if you liked this, have a listen to our other debate with Nick that is going to be uploaded at about the same time as this one. 